This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. So many of the writers in our room have very close connections to teachers. We are people that have been impacted by these systems. We are people that are products of these systems. And, you know, so I think we all sort of just from jump have a lot to say. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. How are you? I am swell. Thank you, Karen. I just ate some jammy Dodgers. <gasps> I am loving reacquainting myself with the junk food of my youth. Speaking of childhood snacks and childhood, I believe your interview subject uh, is related in a very elementary way. So who <laughs> did you talk to this week? So the voice we heard at the beginning of the show belongs to Brittany Nichols, who is a comedy writer and performer and actor. She even made a movie. But we spent most of our time chatting about Abbott Elementary and how the writer's room, which she's a part of, works. I can't wait to listen to your conversation because I love Abbott Elementary so much. But before we get to that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week? So as I mentioned, Brittany has some pretty kick-ass acting credits on her resume, and I was curious if she feels the need to specialize in writing nowadays, or if she'd like to continue to develop her acting and indeed her stand-up career. She also talked about her experience creating a micro-budget movie, Suicide Kale, which did really well on the festival circuit. That is so exciting, and I can't wait to listen to it. And Slate Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode. But if you're not a Slate Plus member but want to hear that segment, why not join Slate Plus? Now is a great time to do just that because Slate is running a special on Slate Plus memberships. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Slate's podcasts cover major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode cultural mysteries. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate+. Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash working plus to access all Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months. This offer is good through October 28th, so sign up now at slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Brittany Nichols. Brittany Nichols, welcome to Working. I know you are one of those, honestly, annoyingly accomplished multi-hyphenate people. You wrote and starred in a movie called Suicide Kale, available on several video-on-demand sites. 
you've acted in shows like Transparent, Take My Wife and A Black Lady Sketch Show. You do comedy. You've worked as a journalist. You even played basketball for a Division One college team based in New Haven. <laughs> but I would love to begin by talking about your current gig as a writer on a TV comedy that is the critical and audience darling Abbott Elementary. First of all, welcome. And perhaps you could begin by telling us what your role is on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You made me sound very cool. Uh, and my <laughs> current role on the show is writer-producer. And, you know, producer is one of those titles that means pretty much a different thing on every every time it's used. Can you say a bit about what it means on Abbott Elementary and for you right now? So the producer title really is just a level uh, when you're one of the writers in the writer's room. It just means that you've sort of been promoted enough times that now you get to call yourself a producer. Amazing. And Abbott is nice because we do get to actually produce our episodes. I think some shows you get the title and you don't necessarily get the responsibility. And on Abbott, even before you reach the level of producer, you get to have a hand in really pulling every aspect of your episode together. Wow, that's super interesting. And I do have some questions about what it means to have a kind of written by episode. But before we get to that, um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit, pull back the curtain on a comedy writer's room and how it works. First, how many writers are in the room? How far before the first episode of the season airs does the writer's room gather? Let's start with those two questions. So we started the last week of April. So we had been going for several weeks before we went into production. Um, and one of the main reasons that we do so much work before we start production is because Quinta is the star of the show. And we want to have her in the writer's room for as long as possible, um, helping us break out the season so that when she disappears, we have a pretty good idea of the roadmap uh, for the rest of the show. And I believe we have... 10 writers that are in the room all the time. Uh, and we have one writer who is part-time. And as you said, Quinta Brunson, who's the star of the show, she obviously is a writer. She wrote the pilot and the first episode of season one. So it's, I was curious exactly how much she could be. I'm sure she would love to be in every second of the writer's room, but it's just not technically possible, right? When she's also, you know, the person who's on screen the most. Yeah, she's a very busy lady. Uh, and it's funny, she very openly admits that she wishes she was in the room more than she is. She yeah. like yeah. prefers it. And uh, I I get it. We, we have a lot of fun. We're a fun group. So I, I get why she misses us. Yes, I'm sure. So in season one, the show had 13 episodes. Season two is at 22. You've talked about when you kind of gather, but at what stage do you break down the season and kind of figure out like, okay, episode five will be about X, episode 12 will be about X, episode 15. Like, when does that happen? At the very beginning of the room, we sort of do some blue skying. Um, we talk about some of the ideas that we had from the first season that never made it into an episode. And we talk about, you know, things that we mold over during our time off. Uh, and Quinta has uh, like a handful of episodes that she knows 
she wants to happen and she sort of knows exactly where they want to go. Um, she also has ideas of like which holidays we're going to pay service to and oh. and which sort of uh, times throughout the year we're just going to uh, use as markers for where we are in the school year. Uh, so we get a lot of that stuff out from the beginning, even if it's just a sort of general idea of, oh, this episode is going to take place on Valentine's Day and this is going to be, you know, the central conflict. And then we'll just keep building as the season goes on, coming up with B story ideas, coming up with C runner ideas. Um, but we usually start with a pretty good chunk of stuff right from jump. Now you used a phrase just then, C runner ideas. What does that mean? <laughs> so we have every episode has an A story and a B story. And then occasionally when we're feeling frisky, we'll throw <laughs> in a C runner. Uh, which is just a, a pretty small idea that you can either weave into A scenes and B scenes or that you can just pop in uh, to add a little bit more texture or sometimes humor uh, throughout the episode. Uh, and a lot of times it's with uh, characters that aren't heavily involved in the A story or B story. So really trying to find something for those actors to do. That's so interesting. Um, so you work as a room, you come up with a lot of ideas, but then... You know, you have your written by credits in season one. You wrote two episodes in that way. So far in season two, uh, you've had one. It's the episode that aired October 12th. But obviously you don't only work on those episodes. But how is it different when you're going to write the episode? And first of all, who decides who it is that's going to write each episode? So our showrunners decide who's going to write each episode. And for the most part, uh, we go in order of level. So all of our oh. higher level EPs who write episodes, our showrunners don't write episodes, but we have a co-EP writer who does. Uh, and so it sort of starts with Quinta, who does the first episode of the season. And then we just go down uh, the list until we run out of writers. And then we start from the top. <laughs> um, and actually in season two, we gave our writer's assistant and our script coordinator episodes, which is oh, not something amazing. that happens on a lot of shows. And it's something that we were able to do, giving them their first produced uh, television credit because we have 22 episodes. So <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very exciting opportunity for them. And we were all super stoked to see them get that opportunity so early in the show's run. And yeah. then... For our written buys, um, we have so much of the bones of the script when we get sent off. Mm. Our, I mean, our showrunner is just truly incredible. Justin Halpern is the showrunner. We have three showrunners. He's the one who's responsible for really ha making the room run day to day. And we do a story, era, a verbal story area pitch, and we do an outline. And in the outline, each of us get assigned a like paragraph so for the scene that we're gonna be assigned to write and uh -huh. so it gives the opportunity for ever all of the writers really to contribute to each of the scripts uh because the writer who goes off to script has sort of a paragraph that includes dialogue includes all of the major beats in the scene and you get yeah. to choose if you like their jokes <laughs> <laughs> that's i think where you, where you could really take some liberties you go uh I didn't really like that joke. I'm going to replace it with something of my own. But the point is that you start off with something. You start off with a lot of yeah. the big pieces and, and how you 
put them together um, really is up to you, but you're never going to be sitting in front of the screen going like feeling overwhelmed and like, what, what yeah. the hell am I supposed to do? Which certainly has been the case for me on, on other shows where it's just like, I, I don't know if you all gave me enough pieces. I think I'm missing yeah. a corner piece right now. <laughs> yeah. You need those edges, man. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you've talked about, you know, you, you get, a sense of you know what it is that people have decided that what the room and and the EP has decided uh, is going to be in the episode. You go off, you know, you make your decisions, you write your your new and better jokes. But then there must be a kind of a feedback stage. And does the feedback come from the whole room or just from the executive producer who kind of works with the room? So our main source of feedback is the table read. Our showrunner is nice enough to let us try our jokes, <laughs> like the jokes that you put into the script. If you if you're feeling good about them and you want to take them to table, you get the opportunity. And you know, sometimes a, a joke that you fought for and thought you were going to be right about you wrong and sometimes a joke that you fought mm -hmm. for and everyone else is like i don't think that's it we'll absolutely destroy at the table read and then you get to very smugly point out <laughs> that you were right um that was and, mine and so, yeah, yes right <laughs> and so at the table read we're hearing it live for the first time we're hearing the actors spin on it Ooh. we have the executives there and so we're getting feedback immediately after from the executives about anything that they feel like needs to change and also while we're listening to it we're marking the jokes that we know worked marking jokes that obviously didn't work and marking jokes that sort of were in that in-between area where mm -hmm. we might want to get some alts to have uh on the day and so then after the mm -hmm. table read we'll go back we'll do notes and we'll do punch up and and really take a look at it together and get everyone's thoughts on what they thought worked really well and what they think could be stronger you mentioned earlier that when it's your episode or one of your episodes, you do get to produce. So tell me what that means on Abbott Elementary. So for us, that means that we get to be a part of all of the pre-production meetings. Um, so we'll have the tone meeting with the director to just sort of talk about you know, the emotional beats of the episode and, and what we want to make sure that we're hitting. Uh, if there's anything that isn't in the script that, you know, we want people to know about um, and we'll do a production meeting. So that's a meeting with all of the department heads where we're just really going over the script with a fine tooth comb, making sure that, you know, uh, casting knows this sort of person that we're looking forward to play uh people that aren't part of our main cast uh we're yeah. talking to props answering any questions they have um talking to the art department you know we talk to the art department a lot about like what goes on the classroom whiteboards and the chalkboards right we're coordinating on just like all of the sort of small things that you might not notice about like uh the brands yeah. that the teachers are holding if they're eating noodles or they're drinking pop or if we're anything that we have to come up with like a fake name oh we'll talk goodness. to them about like what that product should be and then once we're shooting that looks like you're on set for the, your entire episode you're talking to the director about each of the scenes making sure that you know you're getting all of the coverage that you want making sure that if you feel like a scene isn't working you're talking to the director about how to fix it you know is it that a joke is falling flat is it that we actually are missing a little bit of sort of connective tissue that we'll then have to write on the day. Um, and after, it looks like 
uh, weighing in on our episode cuts. So we'll see the director's cut come in and we'll, since we were on set, we'll be able to speak knowledgeably about, you know, oh, I think there's actually a better take or, you mm-hmm. know, now that I'm seeing it, it feels like if we need cuts, we can lose this part of the scene. And do we have any options for <laughs> for this one joke? Can we swap a alt in yeah. instead of the scripted line? We really get to help build the episode uh, in to match, I guess, the one that is living inside of our heads as writers. Right, right. Well, the, with the thing that strikes me as you're, you know, talking about all that, like, first of all, it does sound like you have amazing ownership and also, you know, fantastic opportunities to, you know, to learn by being just involved in, in all kinds of parts of the process. But it also seems like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It sounds, though, that you prefer this way of working and even though it's a lot of work um it's something that you want to do oh absolutely um because you want you know you want your episode to come out the best that it can and i think that you know a lot of people feel like they have uh ideas that are worthy of contributing and uh you want to be able to to do that and we're also at a time unfortunately in the entertainment industry where writers aren't being given that opportunity um either because the rooms are ending before production starts or because production is happening in places like atlanta um we're not as writers being given the opportunities that i think that we deserve and that are Mm. we're entitled to as as the writer of the episode uh and it's also becoming a hindrance for people that are trying to rise through the ranks of writer because you know if you're gonna have the title of producer but yet you've never been on set to produce your own episode that's something that you know unfortunately studios can use against you and and say well are you deserving of this title bump when you haven't actually mm-hmm. done that work and you're like well studio yeah. that's because you were unwilling to <laughs> to pay a writer to do the right. entirety of their job um and, right, and so right. yeah we feel super lucky that we get this opportunity and you know i think we as writers are doing what we can to to fight for writers on other shows that haven't been given uh that that same chance and really letting people know how valuable it is and and how much we really do care about being able to do it. You know, that that makes me think of one of the things that I'm that I've wondered about, you know, as generally speaking as you watch a show, you know, you, you don't tend to think about the creation of it, but you know, I'm very conscious watching Abbott Elementary, which obviously is an amazing show, that it's more even than most comedies, um, it's about a set of characters, how they understand themselves, how they understand each other, how they interact. And I've kind of wondered if in the writer's room, if if kind of people have specialties, you know, if people have specialties um, in, you know, they particularly, you know, have ideas for one particular character or actor, for a theme, um, for a topic that's being explored. Is there anything like that? I think we all have our specialties or things that we like specifically to contribute to, uh, but we don't have anything where like one writer writes this character. Uh, We all really get to contribute to all of them. And it's truly a testament to how strongly drawn the characters were in the pilot is that from episode two, we all had a pretty good idea of what each of these people sounded like and they're very unique. So we don't even run the risk of, you know, sort of pitching a line and going, oh, that could go in either Barbara or Melissa's mouth. It's really when you pitch something, you know exactly who it is 
uh, is going to be saying it and what their point of view on all these various situations are. Uh, I think that yeah. we have writers who uh, do, uh, I, I guess, weird pitches or the out there pitches. We definitely have yeah. people who <laughs> are going to pitch a joke that just no one else in the room ever had a chance of of coming up with, uh, which uh-huh. gives a lot of texture to the episodes. It, it's really um, makes it feel very well-rounded when you have these people who are pitching jokes that no one else in the room uh, could pitch. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think we have our writers who definitely like to write the more romantic stuff and like to, uh-huh. you know, write a little bit of the relationship pieces. Uh, and we have, you know, I, I like to sort of write some of the more emotional beats and some of the storylines that are tying to larger ideas outside of Abbott and connect it to like our, the cultural moment that we're in. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we can sort of do it all. And you sort of have to in the way that our room yeah. is laid out. You really can't. There's no hiding in our room. <laughs> We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Brittany Nichols. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com easy. Ramp.com easy. R-A-M-P dot easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Brittany Nichols. As you mentioned, there are there's a lot going on in the show. Uh, it's very funny, but it's also a really, you know, a really beautiful show. I mean, it's about good people with hard jobs and Ava, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and if anyone in who's listening to this has not watched the show, first of all, they need to get on that right away. But it's in the mockumentary style. Uh, that's the style people might know from, say, The Office. And I wonder how much you think about the demands of that particular, I don't know if it's a genre, a style. Um, you know, do you ever kind of have to explain 
why are these cameras still here? Who are you talking to? Who are you looking at? You know, uh, how much do you kind of want to comment on that as a writer's room and how much do you want to kind of pull back from it and, and just kind of ignore it a little bit? For us, I don't think we have the desire to ignore the cameras. Uh, I think we have a developing relationship with the cameras. I think the longer that they're in the school, you'll see that the relationships between characters and the camera operators uh, change. And I think a lot of that has to do with how the actors and our camera operators interact on set. Uh, It's really lovely to watch. Um, And Tyler has talked about the way that he finds you know, a certain camera operator for a certain feeling that he's having because in this world, he's like, you know, I I have a relationship with the person operating that camera and they get to see me when I'm a little more vulnerable. Uh, That's, you know, this other camera operator uh, for the character. It's, you know, that they sort of are more chummy. It's more of a get a load of this. (laughs) And for us as writers, we're finding different ways to acknowledge the cameras and, and weave in little jokes and, you know, sort of show that the longer that this documentary crew is in the school, you know, the more access they're going to get, uh, the more comfortable people are going to be with them and, and really building that relationship the same way that we're building the relationships between any of the other characters. It, it's something that is mm-hmm. growing and ever changing and that there's tension and things you want to hide and things you want them to catch specifically, you know, it, it's all, a, yeah, it's all a yeah. dance and, to us, it feels like a, a real part of the show. Like, I think it's a different show without the camera crew. Yeah. I don't think it's as easy as you lift them out and you can just keep going. I think that we really try to yeah. make it so that you understand why we've chosen this particular uh, style of comedy. Interesting. I mean, one of the things that can be really effective in that style is what I think of as the look, you know, a character does or say something weird or funny or awkward or whatever, and the other characters kind of react by looking directly into the camera. And I'm curious if there are any limits that you put on yourselves on how much of that kind of business you can do in, a, in any episode, you know, only only five camera stares per episode. And how you <laughs> indicate it in the, in the script? Like, you know, do, do you say, you know, Janine looks at the camera or Barbara looks at the camera? I mean, how do you indicate that? I think that falls into the bucket of us as writers trying to make sure that we're not overly dictating to the actors or to the director Mm. those sorts of moments. We definitely do include them in scripts um, at certain points, you know, sort of act break moments a lot of the time will indicate, you know, we're off on Jacob's look, we're off on Janine's look, Uh, Ava clocks the camera, we'll throw in. Um, So I think it's sort of an even split between looks that we put in the script looks that you know the the actors just fine because we also Uh aren't uh clued into exactly what the blocking of the scene is going to be so the actors Mm -hmm. are always so good at just like finding different moments um and then the director sometimes on the day will also be like oh it feels like we're we're missing you know an interaction or an acknowledgement of this joke or this moment and so let's throw in a look yeah but for the most part we haven't we don't have like a a solid count or amount of times (laughs) and it's something that often we'll do versions where like we have looks and we don't have looks so that in the edit if we are feeling like oh man we're doing a lot of look in the camera this episode (laughs) we'll have 
takes that we can swap in to sort of lower lower that number. Yeah. As I said, you know, it's a very kind, loving show, albeit about the, you know, painful politics of severely underfunded inner city schools with a predominantly black student body. But it's also a very funny workplace comedy. And the teachers at Abbott Elementary do rib each other a lot. Uh, the main character, Janine Teagues, played by the show's creator, Quinta Brunson, whose idealism and enthusiasm often leads to her being mocked by her more, let's just say, experienced, some would say jaded uh, colleagues, and, you know, by the school's principal, Ava. You recently tweeted, Abbott Elementary is a good show to write for because I am paid to tell jokes that insult the boss, <laughs> uh, because Quinta Brunson is, you're writing for her. Now, I am curious, though, how do you calibrate that kind of personal humor, especially about the boss, but even if it wasn't about the boss, you know, uh, in what is a very, you know, good natured, very, so I keep kind of coming back to kind and loving, but I do think that that's the kind of the, the overwhelming vibe. Like, how do you calibrate that? I don't think we calibrate it at all. We just go in. <laughs> <laughs> we just go off on them. <laughs> yeah, we just go in. Uh, Quinta has never pushed back on any joke uh, that we've told about Janine. She often will send a text to the group chat with all the writers with a particular roast that she finds funny. Oh, <laughs> And will ask Whoa. which of us are Whoa. responsible for it. Yeah. And it's just because she's just like, this is really really funny uh not that she is yeah. you know personally offended at all and yes. i think it's also because you know we're either making fun of her height which she knows she's short or we're making fun of something <laughs> that is specific to janine and has nothing to do with quinta because yeah. they're very different people yeah. quinta is not the uh you know ray of sunshine eternal optimist everything will work out. And she's not, a I'm not saying she's a pessimist or anything, but she's, she's not yeah. Janine. And, and so it's very yeah, easy yeah, to yeah, separate yeah. Uh, that we are talking about Janine and not Quinta. Uh, and, you know, I think this season we're, we're trying to branch out into some new areas of, of roast. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we, we, we do that. <laughs> Actually, that brings me to something that I've just been curious about, because obviously, you know, you don't have to go too far to hear, just terrible things happening in writers' rooms, um, and especially in comedy. You know, you get that whole thing of, well, you know, we got to have no limits. And you know, I kind of understand that, but obviously, that can lead to kind of abusive behavior. Um, are there things that have changed in, you know, TV writing to kind of minimize the chances of that kind of terrible behavior happening? Well, TV writing is interesting because there is just so little communication, I think, formally between writers' rooms, right? You really have yeah. no idea what's happening in anyone else's rooms yeah. unless you're friends with people in that room. And even then, you're not necessarily talking about all of the day-to-day -day minutiae or the sort of horrible things that happen. Because I think a lot of people have a lot of shame around being yeah. treated yeah. poorly. They don't necessarily yeah. want to lead with, hey, I am in this situation and that I feel like I really can't escape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so here is like this really embarrassing way that this person is treating me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I can really only truly speak to the rooms that I've been in. And mm -hmm. I luckily have not been in rooms where that is the sort of 
mistreatment that's happening. I've certainly been mm-hmm. in rooms where I didn't love uh, the way that all of us were being treated and that things were happening that yeah. I was not a fan of. But that sort of yeah. particular, we're going to push the boundaries, we're going to say things that make people uncomfortable because we think that we get to, that's not something that, that I've really seen happen. And, yeah, yeah. But, but our room, thankfully right now, is full of people that don't do that. Yeah. And, you know, we even catch, try to catch you know, that that a lot of that stuff doesn't make it into the script. I think the one thing that we have decided is making it to the script is Ava's harassment of Gregory. <laughs> Hello. I'm Gregory Eddie. I'm the sub for the teacher who uh, punted the student. Oh, you're the sub. Forgive me. I thought one of my colleagues here hired a stripper for me. <laughs> but that's, you know, something that we have a conversation about pretty often, uh, about, you yeah, know, what yeah. is it that we're trying to do when do we sort of take the gas off the pedal in that situation what is it you know teaching us about sort of the lack of accountability and in Mm. all of its different ways without being you know really dark about it it's still something that that is a real part of um specifically male teachers experience and you know i think it's just something that isn't talked about a lot and we just try to keep it all in mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know you've you just mentioned something you know this this happens to male teachers um what's the kind of research process for a show that is set in an elementary school um you know what kind of research have you done for the sort of educational or the school life aspects of your setting so we don't have any mandates as far as what we need to be reading or or looking up. Um, I think a lot of us just are, you know, sort of well-read people that have been keeping an eye on some of the issues that we touch on. Um, And Mm -hmm. so whenever we come across like an article or a book or something that someone thinks it could be helpful to people that write for the show, we just sort of send it out and say, hey, you know, you all want to check this out. Um, Uh We do interviews with teachers. So we've talked to um, teachers from the Philadelphia public school system. Um, we actually talked to a woman who works for the Los Angeles, um, public school system. She works under one of the people that's on the board of education. And she talked to us a lot about, um, charter schools and the way that that is impacting specifically Los Angeles. And then, you know, Uh we've also looked into how it is impacting Philadelphia. And then we also have just this treasure trove of, of our own personal histories, uh, with Quinta's mom being a teacher, my mom, uh, or my stepmother is a teacher. My aunt is a teacher's aide. I've done you know, a little bit of teaching when I was in college. So many of the writers in our room have very close connections to teachers and even the actors. A lot of them have family members that are teachers. And so it's, you know, luckily it's one of those things where it's like almost everyone has been to school. It's, (laughs) it's uh, not hard to, to come up with uh, scenarios and, and situations that you yourself have faced. I went to a underfunded black, public school i i saw firsthand and grew up firsthand with a lot of the the things that we're tackling in the show so you know we do do some research but it's one of those things where you know we are people that have been impacted by these systems we are people that Mm -hmm. uh are products of these systems and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so i think we all sort of 
all just from jump have have a lot to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I look at your writing credits specifically in IMDb, you started on LGBTQ themed shows, and you've kind of moved toward more general shows. And I, I don't mean to suggest that they're completely. Um, straight, you know, a black lady sketch show, <laughs> uh, which you worked on, certainly had some amazing queer sketches, things that I never thought I would see on television. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so props for that. And and at least one of the main characters on Abbott Elementary is gay. But, you know, the show's appeal is broad. And I wonder kind of how that mm -hmm. makes you feel. Is it your sense that as you progress in your career, you'll spend less time on queer content? I mean, I think that a lot of the reason that that happened is just because that's who wanted to hire me. I think those are the people who were making sure that their rooms um, were diverse. And, you know, a lot of the people that I knew happened to be people that were from the queer community because I'm a member of the queer community. Um, I mm -hmm. was on Transparent for a few episodes and that happened because I ran into uh, Soloway, the creator of that show, just like at a Pride event. And someone <laughs> introduced me and was like, Brittany's really funny. We just did this funnier Die video together. She's hilarious. You should put her on the show. And the next week, I just had an offer in my inbox for wow. this recurring role in Transparent because we just happened to be occupying the same space for a few minutes at one point. Right. Um, so I, I think it's just such a socially driven industry that you know sometimes mm. that does happen and, and i think a lot of it also was what the industry was sort of dictating and saying and telling me which was that you know you are a black queer person um that's what you can write for you know mm. i don't think that mm. straight white men really get that same sort of dictate of that is what you are right. meant to do here those are the people that you right. can write for but unfortunately i think when you're a person of color or you're a queer person or a disabled person that's the only time that people think of you um and yeah yeah it, it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy almost you know i got into television mm. because i wanted to write for sitcoms i was watching community and 30 rock and happy endings and parks and rec and that was the sort of show that i wanted to write for and then all these streaming uh -huh. services came out and they were like you're a black gender queer lesbian uh hbo max is where you must go <laughs> like it sort of was like you have to live on the internet <laughs> right. um right. and it's been nice because Abbott is, I think, undoing a lot of that for a lot of people. They're seeing how diverse uh, our room is and that the people in our room don't, you know, sort of match or, or map one to one on uh, our characters. It's just people that are mm -hmm. good comedy writers um, and, and have a, a unique voice that, that can work for the show. And I really I really like that. I don't think that I, I have a desire to be, quote unquote, mainstream or to you know write for shows that don't have people that share any identity markers with myself it's just nice to sort of mm -hmm. not be put into a box and to not put myself into a box yeah Brittany nichols thank you so much for sharing bits of your life on working oh thank you so much for having me I, i'd love to talk about work even though i wish no one had to work <laughs> <laughs> i know i know Hi. 
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. That was such a fascinating conversation. And I wanted to start by addressing what Brittany said about Quinta Brunson wishing she was in the room more because I found that really interesting because I feel that's something that's happened a lot with talent of her and my sort of generation. Like you're expected to be a personality and achieving that brings more fans to your work, but it also makes it really hard to transition into less on-screen or less on-camera work. I'm curious if this is something you feel like you've also seen in the media landscape and if this resonates with you at all. And do you prefer being behind the scenes or out in front? Oof. So as Brittany mentioned in the Slate Plus segment, sign up, y'all, because uh, <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, there's probably more pressure on Black and other creatives of color also, I think, on comedians generally to perform as well as to write. I mean, in that industry, you're more likely to stick in executives' mind if you've been in a show or done stand-up or whatever. You know, making people laugh in person is part of how networks recruit for those jobs. So that's one reality of that business. And I have to say, I am very far from that world and that level of success but I know I enjoy being on both sides of the scenes, which I realize is the answer you'd expect from somebody who's on the cusp of cancer and Leo. And yes, <laughs> we just lost all the astrology haters. Maybe we turn <laughs> off the podcast, but there we go. But, you know, since print journalists got the chance to also become broadcasters, which is to say to start podcasting, I have learned that for me at least, performing, which in my world means yakking on a podcast, is a lot less stressful than most of the things I do and have done as part of my work life. I mean, it's still a lot of hard work, but it's easier for me and kind of more relaxing for me than mm -hmm. other assignments. So I can extrapolate them from that, that, you know, different tasks, work different muscles, stimulate different pleasure centers. So if you enjoy being both behind and in front of the mic or camera, and you have the time that it demands, which is probably, as you started, the big issue. Like, mm -hmm. It's great if you can do that. Yeah, I guess it does sort of boil down to the ever perennial answer of there are a lot of different roads to get to any given mm -hmm. uh, destination. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to talk about what Brittany was saying about the way that the Abbott Elementary room is structured, because in the very slim room experience that I had, we actually were supposed to distribute episodes, as it were, 
differently. Like we were told we'd be able to name the episodes that we really wanted to work on rather than what Brittany says here with regard to kind of going down the hierarchical ladder. I'm sure that also would have sort of happened. Like if (laughs) I picked a certain episode and a more senior person picked that, like they would probably get it. But still, what kind of assignment strategy do you prefer? Okay, so... I have never been in a writer's room uh, as a staffer. I've been in there watching people do it, mm-hmm. I guess. So I'm going to base my response on a very different setting, which is Microsoft. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, so <laughs> when I worked on the Microsoft campus, and I haven't done that in 17 years, so I'm sure things have changed, but everyone wanted an office with a window. Of course they did. Yeah. But about half the offices didn't have windows. So there was a clearly and totally understood by everyone process and system by which people would get assigned window offices. And regardless of whether you agreed with the underlying philosophy, it was the clarity of knowing what the system was that made all the difference. Like it really almost doesn't matter what the process is. What is important, I think, is that everybody knows what it is so that people don't spend cycles on something that isn't really productive. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, it does. But I also want to frame the question to you um, in a creative way, where, for instance, as someone who has been in the journalism world, like, do you prefer when your editor's like, hey, we need a story about this? Or do you prefer, (laughs) like, I really want to write about this and doing that? Like, what is the difference to you between those two modes of work? That's okay. I, I hear where you're coming from. And I think it again, it feels like it's slightly different. You know, they're different pleasure centers, because if you get a really clear, I need a story on this, because usually that means someone's died. Sorry, universe, mm. but that's how, kind of how it goes. Like, you might gripe a bit, but you know what you have to do. Whereas when it's something that you really, really want to do, and that you kind of push for, you really have to sell, like the pressure can be so great to Mm -hmm. do, like to really justify this topic that you're so invested in. So although I feel like the things I've gotten most satisfaction from have been those, you know, personal passion projects, Mm -hmm. it's kind of easier just to be assigned something and be like, here you go, I did my best, (laughs) enjoy. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Um, And so you say that you haven't ever been part of a writer's room, but you are obviously a TV watcher. And this is a bit of a macro question, but I'm curious, like, when you start to think about the writing in any given show, like, do you watch out for, like, good or bad writing? Or does it only come to your attention when it's bad? What makes a well-written episode of TV for you? What makes writing good? Um, You're asking the easy question today, Karen. (laughs) Stop already. Um, Let me give the worst answer in the world, but also the one that I think is true, which is, you know it when you see it or you hear it, right? You know, on this show, we have sometimes talked about that process of when you encounter something that you just know it's really good and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you just get it's inspiring and you just want to, like, break it down. You know, you want to study that writing kind of hoping that one day you might attempt something similar. And I think when, especially maybe in screenwriting, there's a tendency to think, oh, the writing should disappear Mm -hmm. because it shouldn't probably call attention to itself. But I have to admit, I enjoy being wowed by like just really good writing that, you know, Mm -hmm. just kind of makes you look up from your phone and really pay attention. Uh, Before I spoke with Brittany, I 
watched her season one episodes again. And she wrote an episode where Barbara, who's the most experienced, the most respected teacher at Abbott Elementary, has to take advantage of her connection with someone she knows from her church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in those conversations, Barbara like became a different person. And, you know, Cheryl Lee Ralph, who plays Barbara, she's an amazing actress. So obviously she changed the way she spoke or the way she carried herself when she was in those scenes. Mm-hmm. So that made a difference. But Brittany knew that character well enough that she understood the ways that Barbara's vocabulary would change and her tone mm-hmm. would be different when she was, uh, you know, having a conversation with a sister congregant. And that kind of stuck out to me, but in a way that, like, impressed me. It wasn't, uh, it didn't kind of spoil what was mm-hmm. going on in the, it just kind of added to my enjoyment. So, you know, definitely uh, good writing. It, I, I like to applaud it. It doesn't pull me out. Bad writing, mm-hmm. I mean, you just watch it once, right? Unless it's <laughs> bad enough to be amusing, but yeah. Um, another thing that you guys talked about was a problem that exists to varying degrees in, ver- in every industry, which is speaking up about something you might not like about your workplace. Yeah, it's really, yeah. really hard to handle yeah. those things at work because it's a space that should technically be separate from your personal life. But at the same time, you can't cordon off creativity in that way either. And negative things that happen at work will often affect you outside of work too, and probably in your next jobs as well. Exactly. Exactly. How do you deal with a work problem? Well, I was really struck when Brittany mentioned shame as a reason why people don't always share the challenges they're facing, even with, you know, good friends or, you know, anybody who's outside of that situation. And I think a lot of the negative feelings that work can bring up, you know, which are usually things like resentment or frustration or anger, are actually kind of referred emotions. You know, we sometimes get mad because we're actually ashamed or humiliated, which, you know, God, that's really heavy. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you would have a good enough relationship with your manager that you could really talk those things through. But also, you know, real talk, your manager isn't your therapist. Um, (laughs) So that doesn't always work. And it kind of can't always work yeah so yeah huge issue and we're often incentivized to kind of compartmentalize those feelings Mm -hmm. you know stifle them especially the higher up the career ladder we climb but I guess um, my go-to tactic in that kind of situation is to try to think of a solution or preferably plural solutions Mm -hmm. Partly, you know, to try to help in solving the problem, but also I think that if you put yourself on that path, you can kind of move away from just marinating in the feelings. Yeah. Again, not quite to squash them, but just to try to just kind of, it never feels particularly productive to, to just, you know, be too attached to them, especially if it's shame or embarrassment. Yeah. Unlike a good steak, feelings shouldn't marinate. Um, (laughs) It's all right. We'll see if our producer cuts that because it was pretty bad. Um, And here's another question that I wanted to bring up sort of about 
feelings within a workplace. Um, what Brittany said about being essentially pigeonholed as a writer is something that really resonated for me. And the tough part of it, I would say, is that it's not necessarily your choice as to when you get to break out of that mold or when it stops happening to you, because sometimes yeah. it won't. Um, like you have to achieve a certain amount of success before getting to make choices, which, some, which yeah. is something that we've talked about a lot on the show. But with regards to this in particular, I'm curious how much you've had to deal with this kind of pigeonholing and what you've done about it. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that many of us have had to wait for opportunities after or maybe even long after we mm -hmm. felt we were ready. And I have to say, it reminds me of when Morrissey's autobiography came out and it was published by Penguin Classics, mm -hmm. an imprint that's <laughs> usually reserved for like the dead or like the truly great of all time. And he was, let's be honest, neither. But <laughs> if you're Morrissey, you can kind of insist, mm -hmm. of course. Even Morrissey had to, you know, build a fan base, sell a ton of records, tour for years, become an icon for better or worse, say a bunch of outrageous things to get into that position. So not to kind of be a defeatist about it, but I suspect that it is one of those like it's part of life and it, it can be used as a sort of a motivation. But yeah, it also kind of sucks. Yeah, I guess the bright side is that more people, especially now, are seem to be more willing to talk about it or at least yes. try to ask people to be more conscientious about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is at least one step in the right direction. I agree. And also, uh, Penguin Classics, I'm ready for you. Yeah, come on, reach out to June. I, I'll, I'll start like sending messages to them every day, demanding <laughs> that you be published. <laughs> well, that's it for our show this week, and we really hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gab Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Brittany Nichols and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who makes everything seem elementary. <laughs> we'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with musician Cameron Liu, better known as Ginger Root. Until then, get back to work. endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.